You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Spencer Hayes, it's good to see you. Likewise, great to finally meet. It looks like the technology gods have smiled upon us finally. That's right. We've been having uh, we've been having some back and forth issues, and some mostly due to stupid mistakes on my part. Given that you are in China, when you say to me, "Hey, your seven o'clock is my morning," so why don't we talk PM is my morning? So why don't we talk then? It did not occur to me that that means that I have to call you the day before, <laughs> and so I just totally blew it. Um, um, and then we had technical issues the second time, but now third, third time's a charm. Um, uh, this is the Sophia program. Welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, meaningoflife.tv, bloggingheads.tv. Um, uh, the Sophia is available on uh, streaming video and um, audio podcast. Uh, I'm Daniel Kaufman, professor of philosophy at Missouri State University, um, and I am very pleased to be joined by Spencer Case. Um, Spencer, why don't you just give a little bit about yourself to people, your, your, your background, um, 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 what brings you to China, so on and so forth. Sure. Well, I'm currently uh, international research, an international research fellow at Wuhan University in Wuhan, China. Um, this is a city I hadn't heard of before I applied for this gig uh, last year, or I guess it was even earlier this year. It's got a city of 10 million people. Um, there, there are all kinds of cities of many million people in China that I've never heard of. It's incredible. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, everything is like an order of magnitude larger over here, it seems. That's like the size uh, of Los Angeles. I mean, that's crazy. I that's crazy. I, somebody <laughs> told me, yeah, somebody told me, like, oh, I'm from a small town. And I'm like, how many people live in it? She's like, two million. <laughs> like, that's, that's larger than the capital of any state I've lived in. It's insane. <laughs> anyway, anyway, before that... Let's see, last year I got my PhD in philosophy from the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, and, uh, my dissertation defends moral realism. I'm interested in meta ethics. Let's see, what, what else beyond that might you want to know? Um, oh, I'm also, yeah, we, go ahead. We, we'll, we'll, I, we'll have to talk about meta ethics sometime because that's something I'm big on. And I'm definitely not a moral realist. So we have, there's plenty of stuff for us to have good, good arguments about. Um, so you did your PhD at UC Boulder, and so you're in China. Did you go on the full-blown job market, or are you doing this first? In other words, is this something you're doing because the job market didn't work out, or are you sort of doing this before you go on the job market? I kind of think this is the job market working out. I, got, I, I have a, a writing-only job for two years. I call that working out. Well, I, did, I wasn't meaning to denigrate what you got. I meant more meanings looking for tenure-track positions that, you know, will allow you yeah, to sort of- I looked for tenure track positions. I didn't get one, but I kind of wanted to do a postdoc anyway, right? If I had gotten some tenure track position at a school that wasn't amazing, I'd, I'd kind of feel compelled to take it, but I'd rather do a postdoc and then get a tenure track job. So at a place that's amazing. Yeah. Or, or wherever I can get it at. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I felt when I got, came out of, so I got my PhD in 1999, and um, I also thought I want a job at a, what, an amazing place. And then the job at Missouri State was offered to me, and I thought to myself, well, I'd better take this because I knew people who held out and got wound up with nothing, with zip. Yeah, so I'd better yeah. take this, but you know, while I'm there, I'll just keep publishing and I'll just keep sending out 
uh, applications, which I did. Um, and up until I got tenure <laughs> and, um, now that I'm at the end of my career or late in my career, but pretty, pretty relatively close to the end, at least of the professor part, um, looking back on it now, I'm actually glad I didn't get a job in an amazing place because I would not have had the freedom that I have. I would not be doing this program. I would not be doing all the public intellectual work I've been doing. I would have not been able to work in any area other than the area they hired me in. And it's just, I I think that people wildly overestimate how good those jobs are and wildly underestimate how good jobs at relatively no name places are just because you, your freedom is just absurd. Right. I mean, it's just, and, and, and from the very day one, you know, we only have, we only have uh, five faculty. From day you you get hired from day one. You're an active member in everything. You you, you make you are involved in all the decision making. You are involved, and so there's just um, a lot to be said for it. Anyway, I didn't mean to go off on a no, no, I get um, it, and I, I could add to that. My undergrad institution is Idaho State University, which I think doesn't even have a philosophy department. It's a, a program lumped in with with English, um, and I've got to say. I'm really glad. I'm really glad I went there and I, and I'm really glad. I'm actually think I got a better education out of that than I would have had I gone to some big place because I had all of this access to the professors. That's right. I, I, a lot of them are, are still my friends today. And, um, it was, it, it's been a really good experience. And I, I don't have any kind of, um, jealousy or, or, or anything towards somebody who, who gets into like Harvard or something like that. Like, yeah. good for you. But uh, these lesser-known schools can also work out for people. It worked out for me. Sounds like your job's working out for you. Oh, absolutely. And um, because I've had so much freedom and been able to do all this public intellectual work, that's how I meet people like you. I mean, I met you through, through freaking Twitter, right? I mean, through, through social media, through, you know, and, and the only reason I'm on social media is because I'm engaged in public intellectual work, which I then promote on the social media platforms. I would not have a Twitter account otherwise. Um, and so there's all sorts of people I would never meet. Um, and, um, um, so Spencer and I, we, we, we met, I don't even remember what, what discussion we met in the middle of. Um, um, there was something, was it, was it something, was it something Massimo was arguing about with somebody or I don't remember what I've seen you pop up in threads. I've been in, um, a few times, a few months ago, there was one. Um, about my last article for Quillette. Um, Which article was that? It was it was um, beyond the Hypatia affair. Philosophers blocking the way of inquiry. She popped up briefly briefly in a in a thread there. I I think we've had some previous interactions, but I I don't recall what they were. Um, yeah, and then um, we probably have. <laughs> um, um, and um, so. Spencer and I started talking to each other. We sort of privately, and we and I said, "Hey, why don't we do a um, why don't we do a why don't we do a discussion? Why don't we talk to each other in blogging heads?" I'm 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 trying to keep bringing more people in. You know, um, um I've started doing uh, uh, talks with Robert Gressis. I've been doing talks with uh, oh, yeah. with Crispin Sartwell. Um, um, you know, originally the show was just me and Massimo, and we did it for years, and then he sort of became a big shot. 
and um, um, has less time. But also, you you just run out of shit to talk to with uh, after a while because you've kind of used up all each other's expertise. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm always looking for new people, and, and, and we had a nice exchange, and I thought, hey, let's try this. So Spencer and I are going to talk about um, a bunch of things to do with philosophy, generally speaking. Um, um, what, what, how we think of it as a discipline, as a subject, um, whether, whether, whether there's a difference. But one of the arguments that on Twitter that Massimo was just involved in recently that I jumped in on for a brief while, um, uh, that, um, that then led to me doing a dialogue with him on, on the subject had to do with, um, with whether or not there's, there's a fundamental difference between, you know, philosophy as a profession and then philosophy maybe as it's done more, more generally, which is something Spencer also is interested that we might talk about um, certain things that we're worried about and so on and so forth and so on. So it'll be somewhat freewheeling. Um, do you want to maybe say a little bit about what, what you t- how you think of philosophy, what, what attracted you to it, why you went into it um, um, get us, to get us started? Yeah, so um, how I got into it. You read my, my essay, um, Bearing Witness, about my leaving the Mormon church. Yeah, so I read the essay. Spencer wrote a – and this is – we're going to have links to all of these things. Spencer wrote a really outstanding essay for Quillette. Was it Quillette? It was Quillette, yeah. yeah. About his journey to philosophy and out of Mormonism. Um, and but I'm going to ask you to, to, to give your, ver, you know, your, your little uh, summary of it because people may not have read it. I've read it, but people may not have read it. Maybe you can give a brief summary uh, now? Of, that, of that. Well, of the journey, because you're going to tell us now about how you got into philosophy and yeah. it is related to your leaving Mormon. Sure That's so right. Give us uh, a short. So I'll just say that for me, I mean, there are different entry points into philosophy. I think for some people, this is just, they, they like puzzles or things like that. Um, like maybe um, Raymond Smolian is somebody like this, where they just have an interest in solving puzzles. And I'm not really into that sort of thing. I, I get frustrated by that, uh, those sorts of activities. But for me, I got into philosophy. It sort of emerged from my own concerns about my life and what is it I'm supposed to believe? How is it I'm supposed to live my life? Um, and... I didn't realize, I didn't think of this as philosophy, right? I'd never heard of philosophy when I was a kid, but in retrospect, it, it seems um, I want to project some kind of teleology on, on my experiences. I mean, I, I grew up in a, um, an LDS home, um, Mormon home, not fundamentalist Mormon. Some people think I mean that. No, I, nothing like that. Just the, the uh, mainstream LDS church um, and uh, both my mom and my dad and my three siblings are uh, you know, very religious, believing Mormons. And I, I struggled with this, right? I, I was, um, I, uh, you're, you're supposed to bear your testimony at a certain point, right? Which is, you, you go before the congregation. It's usually on fasted testimony meeting, which is set aside for this, but other times too. And you just say, you know, typically I know the church is true. I know that Joseph Smith uh, was a prophet. I know that, I guess it'd be Russell and Nielsen today. I know Russell and Nielsen is a prophet. But I, I never could feel like I knew this stuff. And um, what, what do you think the point of that sort of public display is? 
Um, now in hindsight, now in hindsight, looking back on it, aside from whatever the stated purpose is, what do you think is the actual point of making people's having people have to stand up and do that sort of thing? Well, I mean, don't you think that, like, if you even as philosophers, we do this to a degree, to a degree, right? Like, if you have some intuition and you want to test it out, and, and you you hear it confirmed by somebody you trust, maybe your credence goes up a little bit, right? Maybe. So it's sort of it's sort of, you think it's for the, it's mostly serves the purpose of kind of social positioning within the, no, within I don't, the organization. I don't know about social positioning. I think um, it, it can increase your confidence to hear your beliefs affirmed by others. Um, and because reading I it to me, look, I come yeah. out of a Jewish family. Yeah, we do nothing like that. Yeah, and to me, it sounded creepy and manipulative. To be honest. Mm-hmm as a practice. Um, um, it seemed to me like a kind of very psychologically manipulative thing to do, to make somebody do. Um, it, it struck me as, it seems to me at least as an, un, as a person looking from entirely from the outside, as it, the point of it is to kind of ensure a kind of conformity, not just in behavior, but in here that I find invasive. Um, Nobody in a Jewish synagogue, even an Orthodox one, is going to interrogate what you believe. They're going to just look at what you do. Um, right. And so I guess I, I found it, what you described in that essay, I found it very powerful, but I found it powerful in a kind of a creepy and manipulative sort of way. Do you not Do you not view it in a negative? Do you not think it has a sort of a negative purpose? Yeah, yeah I do. I'm, not, I'm certainly not trying to convince you. I'm just asking as an outsider. I do, I do. But, I mean, I should say... I should say, this is my perspective on this, and there'll be other people who've had different experiences. Yeah, of and course. You shouldn't, you, shouldn't take, yeah. you shouldn't take this to be, you know, the final word on the matter. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it just it felt that way. It felt that way to me. And, and I especially hated the saying that I heard it numerous times, that a testimony comes in bearing it, which is to say, like, if you'll just – you know, say something in front of a bunch of people, you'll come to believe it. Now, as a psychological principle, I think that's true, but I think it's an epistemic disaster. It's true in a scary way. It's, 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 true. Sort of, yeah. it's true. And, and um, I see some applications of that to other things, like the, the danger of virtue signaling, the danger of just saying, saying something, um, perhaps sincerely, perhaps not, um, as as a way of achieving social status, because that, that has an that has an effect on on your beliefs that may or may not have anything to do with what's true. Yeah, yeah, and we may come to this. Um, uh, uh, philosophy is not free of this sort of thing, especially not today. Um, and so, um, um, which will maybe we'll come to uh, later if, if we if we get if we, when we're talking about the things we're worried about. Um, so what was the relationship between the sort of the coming out of Mormonism and the going into philosophy and the interest in philosophy? Was it the sort of the epistemic realization you had about, hey, this is, this is a really odd thing to ask somebody to do, especially you know, when I, I told you that they don't have the relevant belief and you're just telling them to go ahead and say it anyway and eventually you'll have it. Was there something yeah. in there that sort of stirred interest in sort of epistemic style? Yeah, I mean, I just had this feeling – that like there's just my mind was just running up against this principle, um, which is that you shouldn't tell somebody you believe some something in order to believe it, right? Like 
I should be concerned with getting my own beliefs right first and then telling other people what I've, what I've come to. And I just felt like my mind had snagged on a protruding bit of reality there. And I wanted to, I wanted to, to find some way to, to sort of fix my beliefs in a way that, that was not, that was free of that kind of manipulation. Now, maybe that's not even possible, but I want to at least make an effort. Sure. And, and that's really what led me into philosophy is I sort of saw a, ph- a philosophy as, you know, the, the community of philosophers at the, at the time, I, I, this would have been late teens, early twenties. I saw like, well, here's an effort to like use reason um, as a way of sort of fixing, fixing beliefs to, about these important things. What should we believe? How should we live? Um, and so I think it's, it's even fair to say that it, it sort of took the place of, of, of religion in my life and still does. Although not in the sense of replacing the dogmatic dimension of it, right? Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and no, but the reason I ask is this will also probably come up in a little bit, but, but, you know, one interesting question with regard to what, what, what philosophy is and what its purpose is, is, is it the purpose of philosophy ultimately to arrive at positions? And I'm not so sure that I think it is. Um, um, despite the fact that plenty of people do, um, um, and obviously a dogma is just a sort of a certain kind of heavily entrenched and enforced uh, position. Um, um, but um, were you looking for philosophy to give you sort of positions, views on things, or, or did you think of it more as a tool set? No, I wanted, I wanted uh, positions. I wanted to find some sort of, um, you know, bedrock on a foundation or something like that. For sure. Um, I don't think I'd put it quite the same way today. Um, but I, I, I think maybe I'm slightly more optimistic than you are about philosophy and, and, and progress and things. And I'll even make this point, which is that um, even if it turns out you, you don't think, well, suppose, it, suppose it's more realism and moral anti-realism and you just think, well, I just don't know how this can be resolved or something. Well, that's a discovery, isn't it? I mean, that's positive knowledge. You found out that there's this intractable issue and the people who are, you know, banging their hands on the table and insisting it's one way or it's the other. um, And we know this, both those people are wrong. So I think that is, that is knowledge, isn't it? That is. Yeah. I mean, it would certainly, it is knowledge of a kind. Um, um, I guess, What's interesting to me isn't just that it may be that that many philosophical issues ultimately suffer from kind of indeterminacy, but even more interesting to me is the fact that it doesn't really matter in many cases with many of these theories which theory is true. In other words, um, um, it has no practical implication even for science whether realism or anti-realism is true. I mean, uh, I had, I just had this discussion with Masim. I mean, there's nothing that prevents a physicist from being a Barclian, right? Um, um, and so what I'm also somewhat interested in is, okay, well then what kind of thing is philosophy doing? Um, if it's, if it's indeterminate and if it, even if it isn't, if it's, if it's has no, no sort of concrete or 
impact on practice. Now, this is obviously not true for all philosophy. Obviously, in the case of normative ethics, it wouldn't be true. But in a lot of areas of philosophy, I think it is. Um, then it, I think it raises a very interesting question. Well, then what on earth is, is this thing we're doing? Um, um, and um, I have my own sort of views on that, which are developing. Um, but um, that's where I think some of the really interesting territory lies is in the, not, not in the, none of them are true, but it doesn't matter which one of them is true in a certain sense. Um, um, that to me is, is interesting. Um, but I don't know how you feel about that. Well, so I, I do disagree about moral realism or anti-realism, that not being of, of any practical significance. Um, there are different ways of, of cashing out this distinction between what, it, where does normative ethics begin and where does meta-ethics, um, or where does normative ethics begin and meta-ethics end? I tend to think of meta-ethics as being just very abstract questions about ethics, not, you know, questions that concern this other autonomous enterprise of normative ethics or something like that. Um, so I think, so uh, let's see, my friend Joshua Blanchard has got a paper on angsty realism that's quite interesting. I commented it at the Rocky Mountain Ethics uh, Congress in, I believe, 2017, um, where he, he explores the, the significance of um, why it is certain views matter to us. Uh, I, it, is, it is interesting and, and, and puzzling, and maybe we want to say it has a certain spiritual significance or it, it shapes our fundamental outlook on reality or something like that. I think there are practical reasons why it matters whether moral realism is, is, is correct or not. Yeah, I should be clear. I, when I said that there, I, I didn't mean moral realism or anti-realism, it doesn't matter. I meant metaphysical anti-realism oh, or realism okay. doesn't matter. That's why I said there's nothing that stops a physicist from being a Barclayan. Um, I, see that. I agree with you. In the case of ethics, what I've just said is not the case. Um, yeah. and, 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 and I don't want to give the impression that I think that all of philosophy is like this, but mm-hmm. I do think that some of the most fundamental longest lasting philosophical questions slash subjects are of this character. Um, 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 I don't think, for example, in epistemology at the end of the day, um, there's going to be any, there, the, the, the question of whether ju- reason, whether justifications are internal or external, I don't think it is, it has, I don't think has an answer. I think that is fundamentally indeterminate. Um, um, and I think a lot of it, um, comes down to sort of, you know, um, what you're engaged in the inquiry for, what, um, what, what, what the relevant interests are involved when you're, when you're engaged in it. Um, I'm very Wittgensteinian about a lot of these things. Um, um, one thing I know I'm absolutely certain of is that the sort of very standard mainline rationalistic, small r rationalistic tradition that runs from Plato all the way up through let's say, um, you know, when I say the logical positivists, is fundamentally mistaken um, about the subject, about the nature of the subject. And I, I wrote this long piece a while ago. Um, I published this long piece in the journal uh, Philosophy, the one that's published by the Royal Institute of Philosophy in Britain, um, just called Knowledge, Wisdom, and the Philosopher. And I actually sort of said that the whole history of philosophy can be, can be broken up into two major Traditions, a sort of a mainline tradition, and then what I call the kind of a, a, a counterculture, which runs from Aristotle through Hume to to the later Wittgenstein to to uh, you know the the ordinary language philosophers and the like. Um, um, and I throw in my lot with the counterculture. Um, um, 
uh, fully understanding that it's it's not it's not it probably is never going to be the dominant um, strain, but I think that that's partly because um, because of professional imperatives that have, imperatives that have nothing to do with the actual validity of the discipline. Um, um, philosophers in the current professional disciplinary environment are simply never going to, as a whole, embrace a view according to which there should be a lot less philosophy, right? Um, <laughs> you know, just like social workers are never going to really want poverty to end or, you know, because um, then you're out of a job, right? Um, um, if, you know, Wittgenstein's right, then half of you, there's no reason for you to be doing anything or doing what you're doing. And so I thought that that was, I think that was always going to be sort of doomed um, um, because of the disciplinary professional imperatives. Um, but you, 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 I, I take it you are, you, you belong, you, you view yourself as belonging to what I'm calling the mainline tradition. If you're a moral realist and I'm assuming you are, uh, are you some sort of epistemic foundationalist or? Uh, trying to figure that out right now. I think so. Yeah. I think I'm the foundationalist. Yeah. It's probably unfair to ask you all this given that you're sort of at the beginning and I'm, I'm relatively nearing the end. It's probably unfair to say, ask you for your settled views on all these things, given that you're just sort of getting started. Um, what, one, one brief point. Yeah, though. please no, say whatever you want. I'm just going to stick loosely on. to that. So it, I think it's easy to like take, um, like some particular view, like Mariology. This, this seems like a paradigm, paradigmatic case. Like, you know, what's the relationship between parts and wholes? That seems pretty irrelevant to practical concerns. But you take specific ethical issues and you think them through far enough and suddenly you start seeing all sorts of really abstract metaphysical and epistemic questions becoming relevant, right? Like, um, for example, muriology seems like maybe it's got something to say about the existence of persons over time, right? And lots of ethical questions hang on this, right? Um, so, if, if you, for example, um, abortion, you might want to know, like, when do you have, like, a new being? You've got a sperm and you've got an egg, and then they, they combine, and at what point is there something where I can say, I, I was once that thing? Suddenly, you know, questions about um, the unities of things that are, that are made up of parts seem kind of relevant here. Um, so I'm, I'm just putting that forward to say, like as an example, you never know when some of these really abstract questions might be discovered to have practical bearing on something that's, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. No, listen, um, um, I, 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 I intone more confidently than, than I actually am. I mean, you know, I, I, I always try to present whatever I think at the time is sort of in the strongest possible version, the strongest possible light, but I'm really very hesitant about everything, right? I mean, um, I mean, the older I get, the more the more hesitant I get about everything, um, um, and the less convinced I am. I mean, I've pretty much completely changed. My views have changed completely from when I first entered the profession. When I first went into the profession, I was a hardcore rationalist. I was a Platonist. I was a Kantian. I mean, I had all of these sort of, you know, um, and, and in many ways, those positions suited a more youthful and idealistic and maybe self-righteous um, uh, temperament. Um, I've just found that as I've gotten older, I would, in other words, I would attribute my shift in philosophical views far more 
to the changing of my temperament as a result of aging and participating in adult forms of life than I would attribute it to any philosophical arguments. You know, um, you've, you've put, used a word that I think is, is really important and neglected in this whole topic, which is temperament, which is we tend to think of, of conflicting intuitions. That's discussed a lot. But I think conflicting philosophical temperaments play a huge role in what views people end up with. I agree. And what, one of the major questions here, like, for example, I think um, tolerance for mystery, right? Tolerance for, like, um, mystery. Like, I, I admit that there's a certain amount of mysteriousness involved in thinking that there are, there are moral facts that we can't uh, um, see or, or, or empirically observe, really. Um, and how is it that they interact with our minds? There are some real puzzles here. Um, but if, if you're like me, and you're like a lot of people, you'll, you'll have a temperament where, well, look, the, um, it's just, it seems like there are certain things that are just wrong, and I'm willing to tolerate a certain amount of mystery um, and weirdness, if you will, in order to make good on that. Where, and, but then there are other people like me who, who are willing to tolerate what seems to me a whole lot more mystery than me, and, and um, they'll go with, like, skeptical theism. And, yeah, it's weird that this, um, you know, completely all-good, all-loving, all-knowing God would allow all these horrible things to happen, but um, I feel God's presence in my life, and I guess, I guess that has to be the case. And so, whereas, you know, you go to the other end of the spectrum, and you've got hard-nosed empiricists and, uh, and the like, where there's very little tolerance for anything that can't be, be nailed down. And I really think these temperaments tend to shape what views people end up with. I, Nicholas, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, you know. Nicholas Rescher has this really interesting um, analogy of um, philosophy as an arms race. So, like, we, we start off with our temperaments. I don't know if he uses the word temperaments here, but I'm using it here. So, uh, we start off with our temperaments, and yeah, maybe I'm, I'm realist, you're anti-realist, and you come up with, um, you know, Mackey's queerness argument, and I come back with something else, and we just keep getting more and more levels of, of logical sophistication, but it seems like the actual undercurrent that's pushing us towards our, our, our various positions are these temperaments where I have a greater tolerance for mystery than you have, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I listen. I've 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 been thinking this now for quite some time, and um, and um, it's a hard thing to sell, though. I mean, the the way that people in philosophy, especially in the the, the politically charged areas, the way that they that they pursue the, the, the you know the, the various questions and stuff is is with a sort of ferocity that. Um, um, I just have very difficult time um, understanding in light of the nature of the subject matter. Um, um, and given how unlikely it is that your certainty can possibly be that, that easily attained. Right. I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't understand anyone who lacks healthy self hesitation, healthy skepticism, self doubt in this discipline. Um, it's not as if you're doing chemistry, right? I mean, I mean, I don't understand the kind of certitude that will lead people to engage in the sub, in the, in the, in the business that they're doing with the kind of ferocity that people in our discipline do. Um, and it only can come from a predisposition or a temperament. It can't possibly be 
from the subject itself or from its literature, because if you read that literature, you'd have to see that there's plenty of smart, well-educated non-Nazis who don't agree with you. (laughs) You know what I mean? And that, that, that matters. It means that you shouldn't be so sure. Right. Um, um, but I just don't see any of that. Um, what I, at least not in the, the charged areas. But I have to say, even in the non-charged areas, the non-politically charged areas, I, I couldn't believe when I was in graduate school the some of the sort of the, the, um, the, 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 the knife fights, the proverbial knife fights between people over shit like the reference of an, of an indexical, you know. Um, or about, you know, com- com- compositional semantics. I mean, I, people stopped being friends with each other for like 30 years over these sorts of things. I don't understand it in general, but I especially don't understand it in philosophy. Uh, one example of that, in like a, <laughs> a whole lot of certainty in a non-charged area, I laughed out loud when I read this. Um, <laughs> I do cite this in my paper, and I, I, think, I, I think I had the uh, self-restraint not to comment on it, in a snarky way, but it's the Coney and Feldman 2011 book, Evidentialism. In the introduction, you know, they, did, they began working on evidentialism when they were astonished to discover that some philosophers do not accept it. They, or they say something that's almost a verbatim quote. They're like, like we, and then they, they even say, we remain amazed to this day. Like, amazed, amazed. Some philosophers just don't accept our view of epistemic justification. <laughs> How could this be? <laughs> I find it very strange, but, you know, I guess that does depend to a certain extent on what you take philosophy to be. And so, you know, given how you, in light of how you came into it and sort of with some sense of some of the, at least the, 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 positions, places you find yourself in on the position map, if you want to call it, how are you inclined to describe philosophy at this point in your life? What would you, what, how would you characterize it as a discipline, as a subject? Yeah, fair enough. Um, when I was in the army, I, I, I didn't mention this, I think in my introduction, but oh I, yeah, please add a little bio if you need to. Yeah. I was in um, Iraq and Afghanistan. I had two deployments and I, I would write for army newspapers. That was my job take pictures and write. Oh, so you were actually, you were an internal journalist. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Well, Fascinating. More mm, propagandist than journalist. No, no, sure. I understand that this. Yeah. I got yeah. in trouble because I kept wanting to say more than they wanted me to say. And it was, for, it was mostly for that reason that I left um, when my contract expired. Anyway, um, I would remember, you know, my second deployment, I was actually a graduate student. They pulled me out of graduate school to send me to participate in the Afghanistan surge. And, I, and so people would say, well, well you're, you're in the reserve. What do you do as a civilian? I'm like, I'm a philosophy graduate student. And they would always say, like, so what's your philosophy? And, or, or, like, what are some of your wise sayings? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Don't piss in the wind. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm supposed to, like, but this. This is, this is like sort of a, in as much as there is a stereotype of, of philosophers, in as much as there's enough public awareness of what philosophy is for there to be a stereotype, it's like a philosopher, someone who just like will dispense nuggets of wisdom, you know, on demand or something like that. Or what's your philosophy? And I'm supposed to give this wrapped up in a bow sort of package, like, there you go. And um, yeah, I never really was able to, 
give a real satisfying answer to, to what is your philosophy, um, like in a, in a word or something. That's just because you don't have one. I mean, I, I think people don't – most people, when they hear philosopher, they think of what you I would normally think of as like a mystic or a sage, right? Yeah. Um, um, I don't think that they think of it as – some you know I don't even even if they might have read a Socratic dialogue you know in high school or something, I'm not sure that they make that connection. You know what I mean? Um, 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 yeah. And I don't even know if I love saying I'm a philosopher. Um, no, I agree. I agree. Um, I am a philosophy professor. Yeah, that's um, fair. Um, but well, this is something that I kind of argued with Massimo about. Um, but anyway, so keep going. So um, yeah. you were so, never able to answer the question, what's your philosophy? No, not well, not satisfying in a satisfying way. Um, I would, at the end, I would give a kind of sketch of moral realism or whatever. But I think I, I'm able to say uh, a little bit more about the value of philosophy. Um, somebody asked me, um, well, I think I, I'd like to study philosophy, but I think, I would come out with more questions than answers. And I said, yeah, but they'd be better questions. They'd be better questions. Um, I think that's an improvement on, on my prior attempts to, to answer this kind of query. So, what, what, but if I were to say like, what is philosophy? I, of course, you know, from teaching platonic dialogues that to, to give necessary and sufficient conditions for any interesting term, it, you know, it's, is a, a dicey endeavor, right? You're not likely to meet success. No, but I would say philosophy is inquiry into certain kinds of questions that cannot be, uh, at least can obviously be resolved empirically or cannot obviously be resolved by any known method and investigating those questions by, um, pure reason in some sense. Um, and what else can we say about it? Um, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's it. But then specifying what kinds of questions there are, I was thinking about this before coming on. Ultimate questions, I've sometimes said, but uh, it's hard to say, it's hard to say what what I mean by ultimate questions without defining it in a way that's circular or right. uninformative. And um, leaving it that that way wouldn't disambiguate it from religion, right? I mean, so yeah, or theology, and so yeah, when people ask me the question. I tell them I don't think that, that it's answerable. I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll sort of say a bunch of things that will give them a sense of what we do. But I never, tr- I never really try to give a formulation because I don't, I don't think there is one. Um, um, so what I'll often do is simply I have sort of in, a, a mental list of, 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 let's say, 10 or 15 very representative philosophical questions Yeah, that I'll just lay out. And usually yeah. this, that alone is enough to get people to a sense of what the subject's about. Um, I will sometimes talk about what I take to be philosophy's distinctive tool set, um, and that's what I would call logical analysis as well as linguistic analysis, whether at the syntactic, the grammatical level, or the uh, pr- pragmatic level. Um if I was a continental philosopher, I might talk something about sort of the, the method of phenomenology, um, 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 the sort of the, the distinctive way of, of which you go around sort of engaging in analysis of the first person. Um, 
but more than that, I really wouldn't say. I mean, it's sort of um, I, I, because I don't think that there is a, a single. I don't think there is a, a defining characteristic. And even worse than that, I'm not even sure. I think that there's a sort of a family resemblance account you could give. Um, I, 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 I know. I hear what you're saying about sort of ultimate questions or fundamental questions, but a lot of times that's not what it's about at all. I, I don't take you know. I don't take the reference of an indexical to be a fundamental question. Um, no, what about, I spent what about, three years in graduate school studying studying that. Yeah, but what about the nature of meaning, right? The nature of meaning. So you take you take some big question and then you zoom into some little tiny yeah. tell up, and then it doesn't seem like an ultimate. Yeah. Question. So but one of the if, yeah in my list, I would say you know how do marks on pieces of paper and stuff. Yeah, have meanings, right? Or yeah. truth, uh, semantic properties. Yes, that that would be sort of a, a question that I would include in a list of philosophical questions. Um, um, but do you think it's a bit more tightly definable? I mean, obviously, you don't think it's definable in necessarily sufficient conditions. But do you think it's more definable than I than I think it is? It seems like it, right? It seems like it. Like there are certain questions that. Uh, seem to resist, you know, they seem to, to, to continue to inspire um, puzzlement and wonder. And often, often, characteristically, you can, you can find some connection to things that are of ultimate significance, right? So even if you don't, if you've got questions that themselves like about the nature of indexicals or something that don't seem of ultimate significance, you know, you can trace it back to things that do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I tend to think... I tend to think like you can make sense of it as a, as a sort of unified enterprise. I think the more interesting question is, is what do we think we're going to get out of it? Right. What, what, what's the value of doing it? And I'd like to hear your take on that. Um, God, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, I was going to say that if you were to, if I was to be pushed to give more of a formulation I probably would give something along the lines that Wilfred Sellers gives in his paper on the scientific and manifest images. Um, and actually in the discussion I just had with Massimo, I said that more and more, it seems to me that, you know, philosophers are sort of the ringleaders in the manifest image, right? I mean, I mean, what, what we do is sort of try to show at the most general level, how all the different subject areas and question areas sort of relate to one another. Um, 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 in what then becomes a sort of a whole, a whole narrative, because of course, one of the things that distinguishes the manifest image from the scientific image is that the manifest images has a sort of a narrational character quality to it. Um, um, if all you had with the scientific image and you just had machines doing science, it would just all be statistics, right? Um, 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 you know, when, what we do is we, we always want to sort of, interpret things in light of a kind of a narrative um, that, 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 that makes a kind of sense that then ties to things that are normative, that ties to things having to do with significance and meaning and stuff like that. Um, um, and so if I was pushed, I would give a sort of a Salarzian account of, of philosophy. Um, um, and I raise that only because of what you just asked me, which is what I, you know, what I think we seek to get out of it. Um, I, I have much humbler ambitions for philosophy now than I would have had when I started out. Um, I don't think ultimately its purpose is to discover the truth. I don't think ultimately its its purpose is to determine 
the good, the true, or the beautiful, right? I mean, I think ultimately its purpose is just to um, um, provide us with a set of tools by which to examine sort of perennial questions, the purpose of which, the ultimate purpose of which is just to get get better at things, um, but not to come upon any, fi- any any solutions, any any final answers, any, um, um, you know, it's, I think, rare that a philosophy leads to a very tangible, you know, wh- one of the areas in which I think it did, which you could argue it really had a very directly tangible effect is in the area of, of, of politics, right? So um, philosophy's relationship to the emergence of modern liberal democracies in the West is one of the more potent, direct, substantial influences it's had. I think that that's the exception rather than the rule. Um, and even there, I would argue that all sorts of non-philosophical forces probably had a lot more to do with it um, than, than philosophy. I think we can over, uh, overestimate how much philosophy had to do with it. Um, um, so I don't know if that's any sort of answer, but... Well, I would, I would also add to things where I think there's been philosophical influence, and I would even call it progress, is in ethics, where it's not like here are a list of perennial questions that, we, that, that we've solved once and for all. I don't think that kind of progress we've made um, or should even aspire to. But I think with the idea of like an expanding moral circle, we see a trajectory towards, you know, other people have interests that have well-beings that, that matter, you need to give them a certain amount of moral consideration. Um, you can see, like, that didn't really exist, or at least I didn't find it at all evident in, like, Homer, right, where it's just loyalty and the people who are who are your friends you should be good to and d- destroy your enemies. But is it your impression that the fact of the expanding moral circle in at least um, developed nations um, – is primarily or even largely the result of philosophical efforts? I wouldn't say primarily. I mean, you had... Even largely? I think, I think largely, yeah. I think largely. I think you can trace a thread um, of... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I, just, I think that's true. I think, um, you know, you, you, see, you see some of this in, in book one of The Republic where um, Socrates is made to say... Um, made to push the line that you should care even about the well-being of your enemies, or you should you should at least not want them to become worse. You should not want to harm them, uh, or at least a wise person would not want to harm even his enemies. And that's that seems like a step beyond um, um, Homer. Now you've got you've got this Christianity and all of these other things that happen, um, but I. I do think that reason plays some role here and it, it plays some role in um, we recognize other people being moral subjects and deserving of our concern. We recognize that like the people who've been enslaved, we can't just treat them any way we want. And, it, and it's of course possible. And maybe perhaps an anti-realist would want to just explain all of that away in terms of purely social forces. Um, but I suppose I suppose if, if you already accept moral realism or give it higher credence, you, you'd be more inclined to see reason itself being an influence here. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think we, I don't think it's a good idea to go into philosophy 
with some practical goal in mind, right? I, I think I think there are good things that come of of us getting into philosophy, but I think you know we it has to be they have to be indirect, right? We have to just sort of do this inquiry for its own sake, yeah, um, not aim directly at some way we want to make the world better. Or, yeah. yeah, you know that's it's, it's interesting. There's so many things to unpack here, and and things that I'm really not sure about. I mean, and, 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 um, so, you know, one thing is the efficacy of moral philosophy into, cause, so I'm, I'm not going to deny that there's moral progress. Indeed. I, I think that's obvious, right? I mean, um, um, and indeed oftentimes what frustrates me the most about my political compatriots over on the, on the, in the on the democratic side of American politics is that they're acting like no moral progress has been made at all. Um, 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 or that things are actually worse, which either is just cynical and disingenuous or means you just don't know any history um, and, and don't know any recent history. Um, but in terms so, so I, moral progress to me is a no brainer. We're making it right. Um, but, the question of, 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 well, the role of philosophy in that I'm much more skeptical about, you know, Peter Singer, who, you know, if you're going to give any example of a philosopher where you'd want to connect their philosophical work to, to very practical developments or progress on the ground, it would be someone like Singer, um, who is given credit for at least two major Moral, I know what you're going to say. I know moral, what you're going to say. Moral movements, um, uh, both the effective altruist and the uh, animal animal welfare movements. Um, but Singer himself will tell you that you know one factory farming video has had way, would have had way will have way more effect on a person's behavior than his entire corpus. Right? Um, um, he downplays the significance of his own work in terms of actual efficacy of producing moral change on the ground, right? Um, 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 so I'm, I'm skeptical about the efficacy of purely intellectual realizations um, on the sensibility. Well, I'm, I'm a counterexample to this because I heard the arguments and I changed my views in light of the arguments, not because I'd seen any factory farming video. And I, I think even if you see... Oh, so you became an ethical vegan just on the basis of the arguments. Yeah. Um, and even, and also, um, yeah, emotion is an important, it plays an important role in moral progress and, and these changing paradigms of how, you know, coming to see other people and also animals as moral subjects. Surely emotion, emotion plays a um, large role here. But that doesn't mean that reason doesn't also play a large role here. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to insist on dichotomizing reason and emotion here. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the, the two can coincide, right? So, well, I don't know if I was making a hard distinction in general. I was simply saying there's a, that there's a, a, a very big, it's very different to present someone with arguments, which is primarily an appeal to their intellect than it is to sort of appeal to people in ways that are designed primarily to appeal to their emotions and to their sensibility. That's all I was saying. I don't know that I was saying that you can necessarily draw a hard line between the two as a general matter. No, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to attribute yeah. that to you. I didn't yeah. mean to attribute that to you, but 
it did sound like you were you were saying that this is this is counter evidence to the view that reason plays some role in moral progress because it seems like emotions are are in the driver's seat here. Whereas I want to say, okay, emotions might be in the driver's seat, but let's consider how reason might also be involved here, right? Like, it's not just that you see some moral, um, some factory farming video, and uh, you're disgusted by it because, like, a lot. I've I've heard, even heard people say this, right? That like, oh, um, I don't want to see those factory farming videos because then I would be disgusted, and I'd rather just enjoy my meat. Um, you know, you could think of it that way, and people do. Like in order for there to actually, in order for you to actually change your behavior, that emotion has to be supported by some kind of reason. Yeah. Um, at least, at least, it has to be supported by recognizing that you can't rationalize this away, um, because there are other instances of suffering where you might think, well, maybe this is necessary or or what have you. But you've got to recognize, okay, I think I know the sorts of things that might justify inflicting large amounts of suffering. I don't see anything like that present here. Therefore, I'm, it looks like my emotion is truth conducive in some way. Right. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Um, I will say that I've heard it far more in the, op- in the other direction. In other words, I've heard multiple times from people, well, I always found the arguments convincing, but I never really actually was enough to sort of motivate me to sort of, and then I sort of forced myself to watch one of these horrific videos, and then that's, then that's what made the difference. Massimo will tell, will tell you that, um, and I've heard that from other people. But, but um, you know, that you are describing that you, you in your case it kind of it worked oppositely, um, um, I, I don't doubt it for a minute. Um, um, what's interesting is that I've read all the arguments and I've watched the videos, and I still very happily eat meat. And so, um, um, you know, and maybe this does speak to sort of the deeper point that we're getting at here. To me, that fact, if I was on the other side, would give me tremendous pause. Right. Because I'm simply not willing to simply call people, everybody a Nazi. Right. <laughs> right. And because that's typically what, what will happen. Right. So if I'll, I'll tell people this. And you just sort of watch them escalate their rhetoric and talking with me. Right. Um, you know, first they get frustrated. <laughs> then they kind of go through a period of disbel of, of, of very, very expressive disbelief. And then ultimately they simply conclude that I'm a terrible person. Right. Um, which just makes me sort of laugh at this point because at this point I'm old enough to really not give a crap whether people I barely know think I'm a terrible person. Um, <laughs> How do you analyze this yourself? What I would want to know. So I just find it, you know, to me, the, the fact that other people just as smart as me who've read all the same stuff as me and seen all the, come to exactly the opposite conclusion, that makes me very skeptical about philosophy. Right. Um, precisely because I'm not inclined to simply dismiss everyone else as being an idiot or evil or whatever. What that does is it makes me ask myself, okay, maybe the thing we're engaged in is not what it looks like at first glance. Right. Um, but anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. You were going to say something. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested how you yourself diagnose the situation. Do you think that the arguments are not good? I think a lot of the arguments aren't good. Um, I also just have a very sort of peculiar, maybe in my, maybe peculiar to me sort of view about morality. Um, um, 
for one thing, I take a very Susan Wolfish view of it. I, I don't believe moral considerations are always are overriding, nor do I, nor do I think they should be. Um, um, uh, Massimo and I have had arguments about this because he's a Stoic and I'm more Aristotelian. And the Stoics obviously think that virtue is the entirety of your flourishing consists of virtue, whereas Aristotle thinks it's only a piece and not even a necessary piece because the life of contemplation is not a life of moral virtue for Aristotle. Um, so for one thing, I just, I just relegate the moral to a much smaller portion of my overall life than people, uh, than the people I find typically I'm engaged with in this sort of an area. So a lot of times, the difference between me and the person I'm arguing with simply comes down to the fact that they think certain things are always overriding and I don't. Right. Okay. So I, w- I want to just pause and, anal- and analyze this, this, this for a second, sure. what you're saying. Sure. Happy to. So, um, I, because I think this, this goes back to your point about peer disagreement. Um, I've never been so impressed with, with, with these um, arguments for pe- uh, peer disagreement leading to, we, we got to suspend judgment. So the idea is, um, if you and I are epistemic peers, we're equally smart. We've all read all the same stuff. We have all the same evidence. Um, um, you know, how is it that I'm able to maintain my own view and you're able to maintain yours and we don't just sort of each suspend judgment? It sounds like you're maybe gesturing in the direction of, of the equal weight view. Like I should just see Spencer and Dan as two people in a room who, who have um, – the same amount of evidence, the same ability to analyze it, who've come to different conclusions. So we should just be neutral on that question or something like that. No, it doesn't. It's, it's not okay. so much. It's not that at all. I mean, I, I, it causes me, it doesn't lead me to think I should suspend judgment or should equal out. It leads me to say, Oh, this is obviously a very different kind of question than I thought it was at the beginning. It's not like, I, I don't think there's actually any independent objective fact of the matter. Right. So of course we can have incommensurable views about this. Right. Um, um, because I think that the questions for the most part are suffer from indeterminacy. Um, and, um, um, especially with respect to moral questions. I mean, with respect to moral questions, it seems to me the most obvious. It's less obvious in other areas. Um, but I, I just don't, I don't, I don't think there's any independent fact of the matter as to these things. And I just think what we're really just talking about are different people with very different priorities in their lives. And I think to a certain extent they're incommensurable. Um, um, I don't know how to, I don't know how to measure myself against one of these people, right? Um, yeah, so the disagreement stuff could, there are a number of different ways to respond to it. One of them is, is like skepticism and just say like, okay, neither of us knows. The other is, is to draw some conclusions about the domain of inquiry itself. And there's no objective fact that we're getting at. It sounds like you want to go there. Um, I, I want to make the point that it's really, really difficult to determine whether in fact you've actually found instances of epistemic peers, right? So, I mean, we're stipulating for the sake of argument that we've all read the same stuff and we're each equally smart and we've each thought about this just as much, but we can't know from this brief conversation that all of those things are true. And we certainly can't know it about every single one of our philosophical disagreements that bear on this no, question. No, So, so we, you can never really, it's not as if, I mean, there's an artificiality to this epistemic peer question. Like, if you had two people who met all of these conditions with regard to some particular philosophical question, well, then maybe we should be skeptics, or then maybe we should be anti-realist about the domain, or, or, or maybe we should each change our credences or something. But 
it's really, really difficult to know in real life yeah. whether an instance of disagreement actually yeah. meets those conditions. In fact, there might not even be one. I mean, we maybe you and Massimo are able to, to determine, you know, particular points because you guys have been talking for a long time. But even then, um, you know, what what is also what is evidence or intuitions evidence right if you have different intuitions than me then we don't have the same evidence um right right anyway. I, I i guess i just don't um a i i think if there's any usefulness to the notion of epistemic peers it's going to have to be a pretty damn loose notion um um otherwise like you just pointed out it becomes a, such an abstract thought experiment that i'm 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 dubious of its usefulness um um to answer any sort of questions that i'd be interested in um, a lot of times, you know, uh, typically this will, I look, I usually don't have these kinds of conversations other than with people that I know quite well. Um, so, you know, the, the vegan thing, um, I have a department head who that's her entire body. That's her entire research agenda is ethical veganism. She's developing an entirely new moral philosophy for the purpose of kind of making what she thinks is the best case for it. Uh, um, I wrote an essay that I published in the electric Agora where I, where I criticized it pretty strongly, criticized her work pretty strongly. She had, I've had numerous, I tried to get her to come on blogging heads, but she doesn't want to. Um, we simply, we're simply never going to agree. Um, and I just can't imagine given how many of the arguments I've already read and heard, it would just be enormously surprising if some new argument came up, oh, well, that's it, right? Um, it's just the fact that she and I are completely, totally different, right? Animals play a role in her life that do not in mine, right? Um, she, ha- she, she has attitudes and, and feelings towards her pets that are just completely alien to me, and I have a pet, right? By the way, I'm also not like an animal lover in the sense like having pets and yeah. thinking cute like a lot of vegans are like um you know they they really they really love their animals whereas i just think i'm just persuaded that they have a moral standing yeah yeah um um but my point is this being is that is that um this isn't itself the reason why i'm skeptical about the subject matter and i'm inclined towards the idea of sort of of sort of widespread indeterminacy with respect to philosophical questions. Listen, I've got 30 other reasons for thinking that this is just one of those things that when it comes up, it's sort of like, yeah, it, it's, it illustrates it. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not proof of it. Um, it's so an expression. Means- it's an expression of it in my view. Right. You've used the word indeterminacy several times and maybe, yeah. maybe you can cash that out for me. Cause indeterminacy not- as in the sense of, of the indeterminacy of translation. Right. I mean, um, um, the difference between indeterminacy and underdetermination, right? So underdetermination is where you don't have sufficient evidence to just to choose between competing hypotheses, but that's simply because not all the evidence is in. At some point, there will be a critical mass of evidence that will allow you to determine to make, choose one hypothesis over another. And indeterminacy is a situation in which there's no amount of evidence that would would make it possible to select one among the other uh, from the other to dis- distinguish one from the other to choose one over the other. The famous example of this that is in philosophy obviously is from Quine's arguments regarding the indeterminacy of translation, 
which I largely accept um, and I think are correct and I think have very deep significance for philosophy way beyond the issue of language because I actually think that the kind of indeterminacy that Quine is talking about is a very, very common feature of most of the major philosophical questions so and problems that we do have. Do you think it could be indeterminate whether or not God exists? Indeterminate whether or not God exists. Man, you're hesitating. I think this is this is obvious. No, like God either exists or God does not exist. I'm not even sure I think that the question is well formed. I mean I I I, I I'd have to ask you fifty things about what you mean by God. Do you mean the okay. giant, giant invisible guy? Do you mean the force? Do you mean, you know, if you ask me, do I think there's a giant invisible man who controls everything and is, and is all, and is perfect and all that? My answer is no. I don't. Okay. How about a being that has the traditional attributes attributed to God? Like, it, like, does that exist or does do that I think exist? such a thing exists? No. I don't. Okay. I don't well, believe, I don't think anything supernatural exists. Okay. Well, but so what? I mean, Okay, well, so what is, those aren't, it's not indeterminate if you're able to give a straight no to apparently not only God, but all supernatural entities. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. It is indeterminate whether Gavagai refers to rabbits or rabbit stages. That doesn't stop me from saying it's a rabbit. It simply means that, it simply means that there is no objective, that there is no relevant, significant difference, that everything that is a rabbit is also a set of undertapped Roger parts, is also a set of, it's a matter of what frameworks we're choosing to employ. It's the same thing with the, uh, with Putnam's micro universe, right? How many balls are there, right? How many objects are there? I mean, you know, the three balls. Well, under one system of counting, there's three. Under another system of counting, there's, uh, you know, five or whatever. And, you know, depending on whether you count, pairs as objects and all of that. I don't think, if you say to me, how many are there really? My answer is that's a bad, that's not a good question. And I think most philosophical questions are like that. Now, with respect to God, I find that question so uninteresting that I just don't, I don't spend very much time on it. Um, 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 I always thought the whole thing of giant, super invisible beings was just goofy and, and ridiculous and never, I was never once ever tempted to it, um, to think it. Um, I have difficulty imagining how anybody could think it. Um, but like I said, uninteresting because you think it's so obviously false. I just don't think it makes any difference. It, it does. It doesn't um, make any difference whether God exists. No. And I don't actually think it really makes any difference even to the people who think he does. Um, um, you know, Christopher Hitchens had this funny line where he said once he said, you know, to some theist he was arguing with, he was like, um, let me ask you, if, if you had absolute categorical proof uh, tomorrow that God does not exist, would you all of a sudden start going and breaking into people's houses and murdering and raping? And and and, 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 and the answer is, of course not, right? I mean, no, I, he'd probably stop going to church. But my point is just that I think that a lot of these sorts of things that we take such, think there's such a great stock in what the answer is, I think if we actually examined our, 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 our lives and our conduct and the reasons why we do things, we'd find out that probably nothing would change very much if it, if it turned out not to be the case, right? Um, 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 I just, I just, um, I don't know. If, if I just, very self-deceiving about the reasons we do things and the reasons we think things. That's certainly true. That's certainly true. But I think that if I discovered 
one, that God existed, well, I would start taking religion more seriously. I would probably resume praying. I would probably See, look I into wouldn't. it. I no? No. Why would I assume that God, maybe God likes uh, free thinkers? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, in, other, in other words, yeah, it's, it's, such it a wild, it's such a wild hypothetical that what winds up happening is people just wind up implicitly channeling all the dogmas and doctrines of the existing religion into whatever they're, whatever, whatever sort of, sort of uh, either question they're an- asking or answer that they're giving. Um, you know, this is probably what's wrong with Pascal's wager, right? I mean, I mean, it's not just that the, that the statistics are screwed up and that he conflates logical bivalence with, with statistical probability. But the thing that's most screwed up about it is that the way he characterizes the, the, the outcomes, right? Whether you're screwed or whether you're in gravy or whatever, all depends on 1500 different assumptions about the nature of the entity that it was that you're supposed to be trying to prove the existence of to begin with, right? Um, I just find, Look, I understand God talk and philosophical interest in God talk in a pre-modern framework. I don't understand it now. I, I just don't. I mean, I, to me, that's like that's like spending years trying to figure out, you know, whether there are fairies and sprites and things like that. I just, it's not interesting. It doesn't matter. It's something that no one more over six years old should think, in my opinion, um, um, unless you're living 500 years before the scientific revolution. Um, I just, it's just not on any radar of reasonable consideration that I, that I would entertain. I, I, and I love, and I love a lot of philosophers who are religious. So don't, don't, this does not mean that I, you know, one of my favorite philosophers is Elizabeth Anscombe, right? Um, um, are you not Are you not exhibiting the same kind of certainty that you were decrying earlier in this? Very no, because I'm just telling no. you my own my own way. I mean, I, I I don't go out and enforce this. I don't hold it against people. I don't use it as a reason to not listen to somebody about some issue that's of of, of interest to me and relevance. Um, uh, Alvin Plantinga is perfectly capable of, of coming up with any number of things that I would think are interesting and correct, despite the, the fact that I think in this area, the man is insane. Um, um, you know, we're just very complicated and weird and strange creatures. And I just try to sort of, for the most part, be honest about what I think, except that people have wildly different views and for me and that my judgment of what they say and do is just on a case by case basis. Um, um, but no, I don't, I'm not of the sort of person that thinks that, Oh, because you, you do this one thing that I think is batshit crazy. That taints everything you think and everything you believe, everything you do. I just never been like that. Um, 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 uh, and like I said, you know, some of my favorite philosophers are religious. Um, um, I, I, there's nothing about, my views about religion that are a reason why I can't think that Elizabeth Anscombe made one of the strongest critiques of modern moral philosophy that's ever been made. Right. Um, or the same with Alistair McIntyre. Um, um, so I'm very, I'm inclined to be very generous in that way. You know, I don't have it, you know, let's distinguish between, you know, the, to express yourself fully and completely and confidently on the one hand, let's distinguish that from having healthy skepticism about ultimately what's true, right? Or what even can be true or false. Cause look, if, if, if these things are tr- generally indeterminate, then a lot of our battles are battles, battles of wills, right? They're, 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 they're not battles over truths. They're battles of wills. 
Yeah. So, so this is the thing is, is, um, the actually, actually, could I take a break for a minute? Maybe. Yeah, okay. Let me pause the recording. Okay. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you can connect your conception of philosophy where many of these questions turn out to be just indeterminate with this, um, humility that you, you advocate. Um, I'm not sure I see a connection between the two. And in fact, you know, this is, something undergrads think about moral relativism, that moral relativism is the same thing as tolerance, right? But then you think, no, like if moral relativism is true and my culture says I need to just impose my will on every other culture, well, then why not? What, what, what's to constrain that? Um, so I'm just, I just put that out there as a way to say I'm not sure how your notion of these questions being indeterminate connects with your personal philosophy of, of, of humility with, with regard to these questions? Um, well, as I said before, I don't think that, um, that the disagreement among peers, let's just do this to be clear that we're speaking pretty uh, colloquially about it, is proof of the indeterminacy. I think it's an expression of it. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, 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 it's an articulation of the indeterminacy. Um, in terms of the inde- relationship of the indeterminacy to what I'm calling humility or talk, I guess what I'm, what, I, what, what the, the relationship that I see is that, um, it's sort of, it's sort of related to, to what I just said to you, right? Um, um, I don't see any good reasons for believing in supernatural entities. Um, somebody else does um what exactly am going to am i going to do about that right um i guess one thing i could do is sort of persecute him to the ends of the earth um i have no reason or desire or interest to do that um partly because i don't think anything ultimately is at stake um um in any very in very any very profound sense um maybe it would lead me to not take as credible anything else he says um, um, on the grounds that if he's witless enough to believe this, then, you know, why should I trust anything else the man says? But I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't expect, I don't expect people to be consistent in that way. Um, um, I, it's, I just have so many examples of people who are completely witless in one area and absolutely brilliant in another. Right. Um, sure. um, um, and so I guess what I ask myself is, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Platonist. I'm not a, I'm not a rationalist. I, I don't expect that, you know, there's a true answer that's sitting there in heaven and that, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to see what it is and it's going to matter and all that. I guess I just see different people with very different frames of reference, very different perspectives, most of whom I can probably learn something interesting from. Um, and, um, and I sort of proceed on that basis. Um, Right, so I'm not I'm not alleging any kind of inconsistency here. I'm just saying it seems like your disposition to be humble and to want to promote tolerance with regard to these questions seems totally independent of of this view about the indeterminacy of philosophical questions. It's not like the one follows from the other, or or well, yes. I mean, there's entirely prudential reasons. Look, this is my arguments ultimately for you know liberalism. They're all prudential, right? 
Um, um, because there's a gazillion problems with liberal theory, right? I mean, you can criticize the, the conception of the citizen as being too abstract. You can uh, criticize the, um, the, the, uh, the idea of rational self-interest. I mean, you can do all that stuff, right? But at the end of the day, I don't see any other arrangement by which large heterogeneous groups of people can live to each other with, without, without knifing each other to death. Um, um, and so ultimately it's pragmatic. Um, um, I mean, look, I could behave like some of the, my colleagues in philosophy and persecute my colleagues across the landscape and try to get them fired from their jobs for disagreeing with me about things that I think are true and important and, you know, and all that. But um, that's where partly I think it's not so much that the indeterminacy directly is responsible for the humility. Humility is justifiable on entirely um, pr- prudential grounds, in my opinion. But I do think that reflecting on the indeterminacy is it provides a kind of a, 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 a sort of an, an after-the-fact rational reconstruction of why not only is it prudential to be tolerant, but but also it's probably uh, truthful to be tolerant because you can be as confident as you like, but you could you could still be dead wrong, right? Um, and unlike in chemistry, right, there is not, there's obviously not that kind of objective fact of the matter that anyone is ever going to be confirmed in the way that, um, experimental results can confirm things in the sciences. Although even, of course, in the sciences, things get overturned, um, 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 uh, periodically, often completely paradigm changing. Um, but in philosophy, just to me, that seems to be, um, its dominant character rather than sort of, you know, um, a rarity. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that the indeterminacy, you know, when one is trying to give a sort of a rational reconstruction of the reason for being humble, one, one reason is because unlike in chemistry, this dispute is not going to be resolved. There's no experimental result that's going to resolve this dispute, Right. There were, there were metaphysical realists and anti-realists in 500 BC. There are metaphysical realists and anti-realists now. It's just hubris, borderline stupid to now think, oh, well, but in 50 years, we'll finally get it, right? I mean, that's just, I believe that in 50 years, we might find out what this chemical bond is because there really is a chemical bond. But realism and anti-realism, metaphysical is more about, is more attitudinal. It's about, constructing certain pictures of the world that have certain advantages and certain disadvantages depending upon what your interests are and the inquiry. Same thing with internalism and externalism and justification. You know, if you're really interested in the normative dimension of justification, you probably don't want to be an externalist. Um, um, If you're more concerned with, you know, getting tied up in Gettier cases, then you probably are going to want to be an externalist. I mean, but... If you ask me, well, what is it really? My answer is it's not that kind of thing. It's nothing really. Right. All right. So Nothing really. I, I wondered, I wondered to what extent um, we were going to get into some of the political issues. Um, sure. But now with the way the conversation has gone, I guess, I guess it's, it's fair to say like we share a lot of the same concerns about what's going on with the discipline. But, but what I want to know now is it seems like our motivations might not be the same. Um, I think that there's, I, be, I believe in moral truth. I think that philosophy is a tool to help us discover it. Why don't you be, before you start though, why don't you be explicit about what we're talking about? When you say we share common concerns about the discipline, about, different motives. About, 
Give just the state, be, be explicit. The, the encroachment of activism in scholarship. That's something that I think we're both worried about. Yes. Okay. Uh, before we go into the details of that, because like that could we we could both be expressing our concern about that for some time. Um, I'm just not quite sure what what motivates your concern about that. I know what motivates my concern about this is I think that there is more truth. I, I think that philosophy is an imperfect tool of helping us discover it. Um, and yeah, so that's why I worry about philosophy being corrupted. But if you, if you don't, if you have such a pessimistic view of, of philosophy, you're not even sure there's a, a loose group resemblance between its various parts, that sort of thing. I'm not sure why you'd be as worried about its, its corruption, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's just individual acts against people that you're worried about. Yeah, I'm not really worried about corruption um, um, in the abstract. Um, um, uh, I'm worried about, I mean, my, my problem with what, what I've been calling the woke brigade in philosophy are doing is similar to sort of why you don't shit in your own pool, right? I mean, I mean, you know, we're all going to have to swim in this pool. If you turn it into such a vicious, backstabbing, cutthroat, brutal environment, no one's going to be able to swim. It's going to just die. There's going to be no pool. They're going to close the pool, right? It's going to close the pool. Not to yeah, mention but- the fact that, not to mention the fact that as an entirely separate, I don't need any philosophy to tell me this. Um, you don't behave this way in a civil, in a civil society. Right? You don't, you don't go after people's livelihood. You don't go after people's reputation in this way. You don't slander and smear and, and, do that sort of thing if you want to be able to all live together. I mean, again, but my, my reasons for thinking this are entirely prudential. Um, um, these people seem to be under some sort of bizarre misimpression that not only they can they win, but they can stay in power in perpetuity. And I don't know how many times we need to elect Donald Trump's to make them see that's not the case. Right. <laughs> right? Um, they keep doing this. You're just going to get, you're going to get somebody you'd wish you could have Trump back. Right. You keep acting like this. And so I just think it's, it's, it's stupid in the way of sort of like shitting in your pool is stupid um, um, and ill-advised and a bad idea. And, but I don't really care that much that they're wrong. Right. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, um, you know, take any of these issues, you know, I mean, I, I care about practical outcomes. So if you tell me that because of your theory, we're now no longer going to maintain uh, sex segregated intimate spaces so that women can have privacy when they're undressed and, and stuff. I do care about that. Right. Right. Um, but not because of some philosophical reason. I just care about that because, you know, I care about women. Right. I mean, I, I have a wife, I have a daughter, I, I'm, I have a mother, I'm invested. Right. Um, um, I'm personally invested. I, I have stake in it. Um, um, uh, but you, you know, shouldn't have to have stake in it to have an opinion about it. I mean, I, Oh, I don't Are think you should have to have a stake in it, but I, I am somewhat suspicious of people that have no stake in things and are just exercised in a manner that I don't understand how you could be unless you did, right? I mean, I just don't get. 
that, oh, that I, level of emotional investment in something you have no stake in. I just don't, I don't understand it personally. Um, right. Um, number of things to say about this. Yeah. As far as what you said about, about certainty, um, I completely agree that it, you know, in as much as you think that epistemic humility is a valuable thing and a valuable thing, not just in philosophy, but generally you should be alarmed about, about some of these, some of these trends, which, which are not limited to philosophy, but have, have certainly influenced it. Um, I, I got to tell you this one anecdote about, about political bias that I think you'll find amusing because I think that this illustrates, illustrates something really sinister, I, th- I think, in, in academia. So this would have been like three or four years ago. I was doing this, this teaching certificate thing at, uh, when I was a grad student at Boulder, which is not in the philosophy department. This is just interdepartmental thing. And um, they, there was this one exercise where we were given a page of um, – uh, it was a, a children's encyclopedia from either Argentina or Brazil – were uh, about the United States, and we were supposed to write one sentence that best encapsulated what was on that page. And it was either in Portuguese or Spanish, I don't remember, but there were, there were a few pictures. And so basically we were trying to s- summarize what our picture of the United States was based on what the, the pictures in front of us. And here were the pictures. There was a picture of the World Trade Center. Obviously, this was before 9-11, this textbook. Uh, there was a picture of the Grand Canyon. There's a picture of the Statue of Liberty. I think there was a small picture of the Golden Gate Bridge. And then there was a picture of um, a kid dressed up as a cowboy with, like, cap guns and then some people playing football. So those were the, those were the images. And we were supposed to come up with, um, you know, one sentence to describe what we would think of the United States based on this, this, this page. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So I, I came up, I mean, it was so bland. I had a hard time thinking of anything. I said like something like America is a, a big place full of, you know, rugged people, maybe something like that. Other people, another, another one of the groups, the sentence they came up with was the United States is a country obsessed with power and domination. And I just thought like, how did you see that? In these images, like, did, I was confused. Like, did they get a different picture than I got? And this was part of the exercise, but no, it was exactly the same thing. And they inferred, and I said, I said, wait, this isn't supposed to be your prior view. You're supposed to base this on the information in front of you. And they're like, yeah, that's right. And I said, yeah, well, everybody's bringing their prior view to the, to it, right? I, it's not, a, I know. not avoidable. I know, <laughs> I know. It's, a, it's, it's unavoidable to some degree. But then I, I asked them, I said, okay, so what, what in this page gives you the impression that America is obsessed with power and domination? And they pointed to the kid with the cowboy outfit and they said, he's got a, he's got an aggressive stance and he's pointing one of the, one of the guns at toy guns at the camera. And it's really threatening. And I just thought, and then somebody else came up with the sentence the United States lacks cultural diversity. And it's like, there's only one visible person in this entire set of photos. How can you? But anyway, the thing that, the thing that I found so alarming about this was that and I think these students, I was the only philosopher there. They were like some people from literature, so a couple of sociologists, um, 
a couple of people from education, but they all ha- were under the impression that they were just responding to the evidence in front of them and not like projecting what they already thought onto whatever was, was given them. Like you give them a Rorschach test and they're like every single blob is going to look like patriarchy or something. <laughs> well, I, listen, I agree with you. I mean, I just, but what is, what specifically to do with philosophy are, are you getting at? I mean, you know, you asked me, you know, you said, you know, I suspect we have similar worries about philosophy, but now you, you said, I'm starting to worry about, I'm starting to wonder about our diff- differing motivations. Yeah. Um, um, so I told you my motivations, um, um, which indeed are different from yours. Um, is this supposed to illustrate something about the difference between us in terms of, are you raising this because you want to suggest that I should be more concerned not just about sort of mundane prudential things, but about whether their views are true or. Well, yeah, I mean, I would hope that one thing that philosophy would help people be able to do is, is to sort of transcend their priors. You're not just projecting your priors on whatever is in front of you. You can allow your mind to snag on some kind of independent reality and to change your views um, a little bit. And, you know, uh, you can be a little bit more optimistic about reason if you consider that changing your view doesn't mean like a complete, I've gone from being an atheist today to a theist. It doesn't have to be that. But I think if you, if you change your priors a little bit in response to new evidence, that itself is, is progress. And I think, I think our discipline can be one that helps people do that, that helps people, um, you know, not completely throw their priors out the window because that's impossible, but to not let them be your destiny, to to respond to new information, to recognize the implications of new information um, and not just to come to the table with one set of views and just keep, keep up the, the Nicholas Rescher escalation or the arms race. I think that's something our discipline can do. And that's something I'm worried about being lost with all of this and being lost with the instrumentalization of philosophy. And there's a right-wing version of this. The right-wing version of this is it's all about dollars and cents and it's all about the economy and all of this. Yeah. And then the left-wing version is philosophy is, um, you know, should be mobilized towards activism and we're going to use the toolkit to undermine structures of oppression as we see them. But I think like there's, there is a, there isn't a value of itself to enable people to reflect on their priors and to come to new conclusions and to recognize new evidence for what it is rather than just seeking to reinforce what they are. I, I don't, I, 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 I don't disagree with virtually any of that. I mean, I mean, if you ask me, well, what's valuable about philosophy? Cause we didn't really talk about what's valuable about it. We only talked about sort of what it is, but I mean, if you ask me what's, what I think is valuable philosophy, certainly um, I would, I would list high up, um, um, the development of the capacity to engage in critical self-examination. Um, but I don't see why the value of that has to be tied to any kind of realism about the subject areas of philosophy. In other words, you know, it's a good thing. You know, one of the reasons it's a good thing to critically examine your own attitudes and, and priors is to appreciate 
the, 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 the very different attitudes and priors that other people have and, and, and to realize, oh, they have their own reasons for those, right? Um, um, and um, the fact that I can critically examine mine makes it easier for me to understand how somebody else could have other ones, which then means that hopefully will translate into me um, being able to live a little better with people with whom I don't agree. I mean, look, I mean, to me at the end of the day, I mean, my ultimate reason for the, for the, for the, for, for, for embracing so strongly the liberal consensus is that um, either there isn't an independent fact of the matter regarding the good or you're never going to be able to conclusively demonstrate what it is. It doesn't really matter. Either way, the result is the same. We all have to live with each other. Are we going to make it a bloody knife fight or are we going to make it relatively pleasant experience? And unless you assume that your side is going to win and remain in power in perpetuity, um, which I think is an incredibly stupid, naive, and ignorant thing to think, um, then we should probably just try to live with each other. And one way to make that a lot easier is to at least understand that people who disagree with you have their own reasons just like you do, right? And I do think that being able to critically examine your own views helps you, helps make that a lot easier, right? But I don't think that it requires there to be any any independent fact of the matter or realism about any of these subjects. It's just a good idea just for the sake of having the 80 or so years we get to be around be pleasant and productive and not horrible, right? Yeah, I suppose I agree with your, your prudential. And to me, that's enough. I mean, some, I for some people, that's not concern. enough. Yeah. For me, yeah. that's enough. It's not enough for you, I, probably. Um, and I'm not trying to convince you, by the I way. I'm just, I'm yeah, I, I suppose that's right. I suppose that's right. I mean, I, I'm worried about the... I mean, even for you, it, this, it can't just be a matter of self-interest, right? I mean, there, there's got to be some kind of principle here. Like this guy, like we ought to, we ought to all get along. That that sounds an awful lot like an like an ethical principle you're appealing to here. Well, I don't know. I mean, is it? I mean, do, do I need a principle to explain why I prefer to have a peaceful, calm life in harmony with my neighbors than to be in constant war and fear for? my livelihood, my well-being, and all of that, do I really need a principle to explain that? Well, I mean, there are preferences, and there are preferences, right? Like, um, there's a preference for, uh, you know, coffee rather than tea, and a, but a preference for, like, a peaceful and calm life, that seems like a, like a rational preference. Not that the other one's irrational, but it's just sort of, I don't know, non-rational. At least that's yeah, how that's, I... That's, that's, that's sort of Kant's distinguished distinction between judgments of mere agreeability which are entirely subjective and aren't thing, not matters of dispute, and then judgments of beauty, which he thinks imply the expectation of agreement from other people. Um, I guess maybe I'm just, I mean, listen, I, I am not suggesting that my view on this is a, is a predominant one or that most people would agree with it. It's, I'm just simply trying to be as honest as I can in answering you. I guess just I'm getting to the point now, the older and older I get, that I'm realizing the absolute futility of ever expecting widespread significant agreement with respect to anything really fundamental, which is why, which is, which is exactly what the liberal 
consensus is based upon, right? You think about Rawls, right? It's predicated on the assumption that we are never going to accept on a common view of the good. And then ask, okay, if we can't, then how are we going to live? And the way we live is to just give each other a lot of space, <laughs> right? Um, um, you know, very, we're going to live roughly in, in, in the manner described by John Stuart Mill on liberty. Um, now, to me, that's entirely procedural. I don't know that that requires a tremendous number of principles. It just means that, you know, better to get along than to be in a constant knife fight, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, See, I worry about lofty aims. You worry about my my low ambition. I worry about. I'm I'm always most worried by the people who have the loftiest aims. They scare me the most. Um, I would give me a room of a room full of middling, unprincipled, uncertain people any day. Um, moral, moral zealotry is really dangerous, and it's, yeah, I'm it's, terrified of people's uh, of people's. Um, rightness i'm terrified of their nobility i'm terrified of just i'd rather i'd rather just deal with average fallible people right um who have no great pretensions uh to justice or anything else um i don't like moral crusades i don't like i don't even like all of this 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 you know i've talked to massimo about this i've really i'm really really and some of the people on the site get very angry at me for this I am very, very skeptical of all of these efforts at moral and characterological self-improvement under the guidance of all these various theories, whether it's mindfulness or whether it's... I just find all of it vaguely creepy, scary, unnatural. Um, um, You know, I, I kind of agree with Hume that there's a kind of thinking that is appropriate and makes sense in the study. But if you keep doing that, when you walk outside, then you become a very strange person. Um, and one that I probably would stay away from. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, 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 I think I, I, you know, in other words, so I'm an anti-realist in the study, but I don't act like, I don't act as if there aren't trees, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I just, I guess I yeah, think I, philosophers I, I, way too, try to bring way too much. And Massimo completely disagrees with this because Massimo wants to re- go back to the ancient Greek notion where philosophy and life are entirely integrated. Um, I just don't, I don't, I don't well, like I the results. I think more like, like Massimo on that is I, I think, I, I don't like the idea of Hume's, by perspectival perspective on philosophy, because then what's the point? Like, why go into the study? What's the point of it to begin damn, with? Because it's damned interesting, because it does. See, I don't doubt, it's funny. This is going to seem random, but it relates to the vegan thing, right? So one of the things that people often say to me when they're making these vegan arguments is... um And actually, it reminds me a little bit of Pascal's wager. How little you have to give up to save the world in an enormous amount of suffering. I mean, after all, you know, how could you – it's just, you know, tastiness, right? I don't downplay tastiness. I think that's one of the most important things there is, right? Um, 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 I, I have a very – to a certain extent, very pessimistic, fatalistic view about life. I mean, I mean, I think that an awful lot of all of this stuff 
just is born out of out of initial catastrophically unrealistic and mistaken expectations. Right? To my mind, what life primarily is is suffering. That is not alterable. That is the condition of things. Um and that remains true even if one is extraordinarily lucky and wealthy and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I've come from a very wealthy, wealthy family. I don't suffer nearly as much as a bazillion other people do. And yet I had, you know, spent the most nightmarish six weeks of my life this spring when I thought when my father was in intensive care and I thought he was going to die. Right. Um, um, to me, the expectation is suffering that is unavoidable. And so all of these little, little things that people want to minimize, that philosophers love to minimize, to me, that's the whole freaking point. Um, um, and so, um, so yeah, I mean, I just don't, I don't, I would, I would, I would place a much higher value on probably the things that you would think are very small, right? Um, and I would place a much smaller value on the things that you think are tremendously important. Um, I, I, I just don't, to me, the mundanities are the whole point, and um, the the very deep thinking and all of that is stuff that some people will have the luxury to do sometimes, and it's enjoyable. But I just think it's it's self delusional to think that it's tapping into some deep, you know, that we're doing on the sort of meaning side what the physicists are doing on the the fundamental uh, uh, nature of, of the material world side, right? I just don't think that. No, I don't. I don't think there's a there's a very tight analogy there. But look, I, I like I said at the beginning, there are some people for whom philosophy is is studying interesting puzzles. But for me, if I didn't think that there was some important moral truth here to be discovered, some truth that's relevant to life outside the study, I would not be investing this kind of time into it. Right? I, I mean, I I do enjoy it, but. That's not that's not why I, I take myself to be motivated, and perhaps there's some confabulation going on. Perhaps I'm just would you say the same some, thing about mm-hmm. art, would you say the same thing about arts or literature or music? Yeah, I think I think those th- I think beauty is a real thing. I think beauty is important. See, no, I no, think- that's not. I don't mean that. What I mean is more um, that if there wasn't something to art, music, and literature beyond the enjoyment and the really interesting experiences that come out of their consumption, would they be in some sense diminished for it? See, I don't think so. I, I, I'm not, I guess I'm not sure what, what beyond it is you're, you're, you're talking about. Like, like what doing studies that, Oh, well, the same seems- thing, the same thing that's, that seems to be required. So you just said, if all that there was to philosophy was to have interesting experiences and to, and to pursue and pose interesting questions, then I wouldn't be putting that much into it. And what I'm, I guess I'm asking is I put an enormous amount of my time and energy into the consumption of music and literature and arts. And I'm wondering whether, and I don't think that they have that sort of significance um, beyond that. And that to me is, 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 is more than is, is, is still not, not wouldn't be a reason to not pursue them to the extent that I do. I, I'm just wondering whether you feel that way in general or whether it's just about philosophy that you feel that way. No, that, that's fair. I guess. No, I mean, I, I listen to, 
I listen to music for enjoyment, but I just don't take, I don't take that to be mostly what I'm doing in philosophy. And perhaps I'm deluded in that. Perhaps I'm deluded in that, but I don't I'm take suggesting that. no such thing. I'm simply asking. Yeah. Um, I am well aware that mine is a very probably eccentric way of thinking about this. Certainly for philosophers. I, 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 um, now look, I don't want to underplay too much. I mean, look, I do think philosophy does pr- produce things of, of, importance. Um, I think that the tool set you learn to use is very useful because it can be employed in a lot of places, not just with respect to philosophical questions. So I do think that people who do philosophy get better at doing almost everything else that involves the mind. Right. Um, um, So it has instrumental value in that regard. And it's not a, not negligible in my view. Um, I also do think that, um, what you said before, I do think that philosophy does make it help a person to become skilled in critical self-examination, which I do believe is essential to being able to live together in in harmony and peace, given that either there's no, either the, either the fact of the matter is indeterminate or we're not going to ever have confirmation that we found it. Right. Doesn't matter which, um, but the more I critically examine myself, the better I'm probably going to appreciate other people's reasons for having different views and doing living different ways that will then make me able to tolerate better people's experiments and living, as Mill would put it, right? Um, so I do think that those are valuable, very valuable skills, right? But if you ask me, do I think that philosophy, you know, does philosophy, if there isn't a fact of the matter about what ultimate objective morality consists of is it worth studying ethics my answer is absolutely um um and as and, and as a matter of fact that 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 would be the thing i was least interested in about it um um uh, huh, I, i'm not that interested in theology because i don't think that there is a god and if i didn't think there were ethical truths i wouldn't be that interested in studying ethics i find theology fascinating as a matter of fact that's probably the bulk of what i watch on youtube are oh disputes between theologians and, and I never once believed it once in my entire life. Um, you know, I, he, we do have different motivations. Let we me try to defend myself in one more way and sort right. of think of this, and then we should probably wrap up. Um, I hope that we're going to do more of these because I get the sense that we have probably a lot of things we could talk about. And I would love to talk to you about meta ethics. Um, 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 look, I'm going to go back to the thing with my father's uh, 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 near death. So my father is 91. He's very old. Um, 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 and he started falling and hallucinating. This was back in, in the spring of this year. And um, turned out he had a lung infection, probably from aspirating food, um, because my father likes to talk while he eats. Um, and... Um, so he was in there for, for, he was in the ICU, then he was in the hospital for three weeks, then he had three more weeks in rehab. It was terrible, it was brutal, it was, it was a punishing experience. I think I'm still kind of traumatized by it. Um, um, and, um, you know, I'm seeing a therapist because of it. Um, it was a very, very harsh, um, experience. Um, and, um, when he came out, my instinct was I wanted to sort of make arrangements so that there would be constant supervision, there would be constant support, there would be constant help because they, he insists on staying in home, at home 
and not moving into an, a, a managed environment. And I, he absolutely would resist any efforts. I, I once I realized you really there's no way to make a senior's home equivalent to a managed environment. There's no way to do it. Even with my parents' money, they can hire as many people as they want. It's just simply not possible, right? And I, for a while, I was extremely angry. And I told him, I mean, I had a, I had a sort of a falling, I had sort of like a, a you know, like a, a conflict with him, a confrontation with him about this. And he said, to, he asked me the following. He said, I'm 91. He said, what the hell is the point of me staying alive longer if I'm not going to do what I want? What the hell's the point of it? Right? And I realized he's absolutely right. <laughs> um, now, that it constitutes a bird. The only thing I thought was a bit rather myopic was that it wasn't really occurring to him how this was affecting other people, right? Sure. Like me and my daughter and all of that. But I then, and I've had this, I've had to deal with a teenager who is much more morally objectivist and realist than you are, who is, wow. who's as furious as her grandfather. You know how teenagers are. Teenagers are very righteous, right? She's furious at her grandfather. If he really loved me, he wouldn't be doing this. Doesn't he know I word am? And I, what I told her was, I said, you know something? I said, I have no idea how I'm going to react and how I'm going to behave when death is literally this close in my face. I have no idea. So my inclination is just to be completely, utterly charitable. And I can afford to be, right? Um, and so can you, I told her, right? Um, this is a long-winded way of answering answering what you trying to justify myself a little more to you. Um, look, at the end of the day, we get to live X amount of years. Thank God, hopefully, we're not struggling just to survive. If our existential needs have been met, if there's no war, if there's no famine, if there's no, then for God's sake. I'm going to enjoy what I eat. I'm going to enjoy the artworks, the, the stuff that I like to read and look at. I'm going to do the work that I find personally interesting and fulfilling. And I don't see why I require any more motivation than that. Right? I am not in an existential struggle for my survival. And I think it's unseemly to pretend like I am, right? To act like someone who is. And I feel like all of these people, these super intense people, are acting the way I would expect you to act if you lived in fucking Darfur, all right? <laughs> Not in the United States, in some cushy digs, in a university department, right? Um, um, and so to me, I think all these little things, the little pleasures, to me, I think that's the whole point. <laughs> that's the reason why people want to become unpoor, so they can do those freaking things. So I don't see why we who aren't freaking poor would diminish all the simple little pleasures and trivialities and mundanities that people who are in desperate straits are desperately trying to attain, right? I almost feel like we've got it so good that we have to try to invent problems. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. That's my, guess- that's my attitude, so to speak. Um, and that's how I would defend it. Um, um, but I, yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose my outlook and philosophy, yeah, it, it's clearly different than yours. We have overlapping concerns about some of these practical things. But for me, um, it wasn't just what's convenient, how do I live? 
in deciding, do I bear witness to the prophecy of Joseph Smith or not? This is like, is this true or not? Am I living according to a true principle? Am I living with integrity or not? And that to me is central to what philosophy is, trying to live with integrity um, with regard to the, these ultimate questions in a world full of uncertainty. And I think you can do it without being a zealot. In fact, I think the people who are behaving in a, in a way that's overzealous, um, you know, they're suffering from a lack of self-examination or, or, or something like that. I don't think that the way to make philosophy, I don't know, more humble and honest is, is to divorce it from, from the commitment to moral principle or something like that. At least I guess that's how my perspective differs from yours in this. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I mean, you entered into philosophy from the framework, frame of reference of profound existential crisis, right? Um, I mean, one of the best things about the essay, and it's going to be linked to, so the audience will know, Spencer is a very good writer. Um, And one of the things about the essay is I actually found it quite devastating part of it to read. Um, because it's so well written and because what it describes is a very young person who clearly is in anguish, right? Um, and I thought, thought it was very effective, um, in that regard. Um, um, you come, you came to philosophy from such a, a, a point of profound, um, consciousness that it doesn't surprise me at all that that's in a sense the template upon which you're building your philosophical career. You have to understand, I came to philosophy from, from luxury and comfort against the backdrop of such utter total catastrophe. Right. And what I mean is I come from a family of Holocaust survivors. My mother was in a concentration camp. It was in Bergen-Belsen. Her entire, my entire, you can count my entire living family on like, a hand and a half, right? I mean, there literally are none of us left because they were almost all gassed, right? Um, and so I am so profoundly aware <laughs> of just how few problems I have, <laughs> real ones. And I'm so profoundly aware of what genuine total catastrophe, human catastrophe and disaster look like that I am just very, very skittish about adopting any sort of overly um, grandiose posture with respect to any sort of problem that I could devise or imagine. Right. Um, um, And so I came to philosophy from the position of my parents did the unbelievable thing and that is surviving the Nazis and building up enough wealth to give a young a child an incredible life. And then, you know, in one of the nicest parts of the United States, send him to one of the best colleges. He can do whatever he wants. Damn it. I'm going to take that opportunity. Right. And I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm going to lead an interesting life and not find new reasons to martyr myself so that I can look like I'm, taking the world seriously. I don't need to look like I'm taking the world seriously. I know very well. All I need to do is talk to my mother to find out how fucking serious the world can be. Um, And I think it would be unseemly of me. So look, in that sense, and here's a perfect example of where the temperament, I think, overwhelms, even if there is an objective reality, it overwhelms it, right? You and I should do philosophy differently. It would be unseemly, in my view, 
for me to approach philosophy the way you do, because I'm not coming from your background, right? I'm not coming from the place you came from, right? Um, um, I came to philosophy from the standpoint of the incredible luxury and gift of being able to do whatever I want and not having to earn a lot of money because my parents already had made all the money. And so I went, you know, I, 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 that, that's how I approach it. Um, um, I don't think you could have approached it any other way, given how you came to it. I'll be interested right. to see 30 years from now if you're still like this. But how would you know? I mean, you know, I don't know how old. I'm 52. How old are you? 34. Right. So 34. If we'd had this conversation when I was 34, it would have been a very different conversation. would have been an even different conversation when I was in my 20s. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, where you develop. But, I mean, I understand what you where you're coming from makes perfect sense to me. Um, and, and it makes equally perfect sense why I could never come to it that way. Um, 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 I also come out of a religious tradition that just doesn't require the kinds of commitments and certitudes and, um, 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 you know, that, that the tradition you come from does. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but. It makes sense. Let's not let this be our last conversation. No, absolutely. I, and, and I would like to, in the future, talk about specific things. So like metaethics and the areas that you're working in are areas I'm very interested in. And I suspect that we disagree interest, in interesting ways that would make for very good discussions. Um, so anyway, Spencer, thank you so much. And uh, to the audience, uh, Spencer will be back by his own. You heard him say it. And so um, – uh, uh, we will we will have more dialogues uh, in the future. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. All right, take care.